This episode is brought to you by MyProducer.io, a new marketplace for film, TV, and commercial production staffing. MyProducer.io is a community focused on connecting talented producers and hiring managers with the next generation of crew. Job seekers can create a profile and apply to jobs absolutely for free. Employers can create one-week postings for free, or they can choose from a handful of paid options. Visit MyProducer.io today and use code HWOOD25 to receive 25% off any paid posting. In this episode, Jasper and I speak with Shane Stanley, an Emmy Award-winning filmmaker and author. As a kid, Shane learned about film by being at an edit bay, which is what most kids do, right? So naturally, we discuss how his career path developed from there. We transition to talk about the often lengthy, sometimes infuriating timelines for developing a film, the role of marketing, how technology is changing the industry, and industry standards for pay. Shane also gives savvy advice for aspiring filmmakers just starting their careers. Before we segue into an overview of his new book, What You Don't Learn in Film School, we cover a lot of ground. So pour yourself another cup of coffee, or kombucha, or whatever helps you focus, and listen closely. Enjoy. So excited to have Shane Stanley, filmmaker, author, water of vegetation, on our show tonight. Honored to be here. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Thanks for joining us. Also have, as our guest co-host, the head of community for MyProducer.io, and also independent producer, Jasper Gray. Hey, Jasper. Scary. It's a pleasure to be here with you guys today. So let's dive in. Shane, your career is a laundry list of credits and amazing projects. Thank Give you. us the, the log line and a little bit more detail after that. Log line. Well, the Reader's Digest version is I grew up in a Hollywood working family. I started working in front of the camera when I was nine months old. Dad was a struggling filmmaker who cast me in any commercial job or film job he could get that needed a kid in diapers. And I was pretty well behaved. This was at 22, right? Nine months. <laughs> yeah, I started nine months old and uh, I still wore diapers till I was 22. Um, <laughs> Wait, we we're supposed to take those off? <laughs> but, you know, and... As I got older, I started doing a lot of, you know, back then, Encyclopedia Britannica was doing a whole bunch of educational films like Burns and Poisons and Safety Check Your Car and Walk Safe Young America. And I honestly did not like being in front of the camera. I just didn't. It was a lot of hurry up and wait. It wasn't for me. I'm an impatient, you know, too much caffeine all the time kind of guy. And so... I really started to explore behind the camera and my father had an edit bay in the house, which back then was a lot different than they are now. It was moviolas and flatbeds. And I started working a, a flatbed and a moviola when I was about seven years old, splicing and syncing sound to picture and working with him in the film medium as a very young age. And as I grew up, dad started getting more and more jobs. And they were very low budget jobs. You know, he was documentary where he'd get 20 grand and have to chase things around for six or eight months and you know so it turned into grab the wife the kid and anybody else that would volunteer for the day and let's go shoot so i i started doing that and as time went on we got more and more successful very fortunate to get you know a series of shows on the air that did very well and 
our budgets didn't get any bigger. So I just continued to kind of thrive in this twenty thousand to two hundred thousand dollar range of making these, you know, network two hour specials that were airing and took it from there. Talk to us about your evolution as a filmmaker then, because you've done a variety of kinds of projects. So how do you go from working with dad to doing a blockbuster like Gridiron Gang? Basically, as artists, as filmmakers, we're always evolving. When I made the decision that I wanted to be a filmmaker full time, which was actually pretty late in life, I didn't finally put everything else aside and sell my soul to making movies until I was about 24 years old. I was actually very late, but I was always working in the industry. And I think the last thing I wanted to do was to follow in dad's footsteps. A lot of us as kids do follow in our parents' footsteps, and then we become our own individuals. And the last thing we want to do is be like mom or dad. I just think it's a part of coming of age. And then one day, somebody that I didn't even know saw something I did and said, you know, you missed your calling, kid. You should be doing this. And so I went to my dad and said, I want to do this. And he said, great, get your ass in the edit bay. I'll see you in five, 10 years. I was like, what do you mean? He goes, well, filmmakers learn how to make movies in the edit bay. You didn't go to college. Go learn on other people's mistakes and you'll learn what not to do. So I literally scrapped and snarled and tried to fight my way through the industry working any job I could to pay the bills. I was, you know, grip, gaffer, electric, caterer, latrine cleaner on every and any set I could get and then had an edit bay and just I edited neighbors' home movies. I edited short films, college films, whatever I could get my hands on. I started getting into the music video scene, which I was very fortunate when they were still making them, and started from there. What's the worst project, and I'm sure probably a hundred are going to come to mind immediately, that you ever cut? The worst project I ever cut. And we don't always name names, by oh, the way. So you, I'll name I mean, names. unless I don't you even want know to. who the guy is. Um, it was about, God, it was about 25 years ago. This guy got a grant, somehow finagled money out of our government to go travel and make a documentary. So he took his palm camera, palm quarter, whatever they were, and just took trains all over Europe. He had no idea what he was doing. And he found me through word of mouth and he paid me way too much money to cut his trip into an hour and a half, which was basically... 52 minutes of a POV out of a moving train and buildings and pigeons and all sorts of other stuff. And it was God awful. And he had library music that he just looped through the whole thing. And I did that. So about a year later, I was up for another job and a guy called me in and he said, this is what I'm doing. And it was a similar idea. And he said to me, there was this movie I saw last year so worst thing I ever saw, I don't want it to look anything like that. And it was the same movie. <laughs> so <laughs> I know it's it's tough to, but it was just one of those small world. They didn't know each other. Somehow, someway, this guy had seen this piece of crap. So it was the worst thing I ever. You cut. know, all the post-production people stopped listening after you said, I got paid way too much. Oh, I got paid way too much. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they're like, we don't care what it was. You got paid. There's union, which I, you know, love the union editing work when I used to cut. But then there was the guy had no clue what any, I mean, he should have paid me 500 bucks a week to do this. And he paid me like, it was like, I'll give you five grand a week. Can you just cut this shit together? That was the honest truth. It was like one of those jobs. But I didn't feel bad taking his money because I was the guy calling friends of mine saying, 
I need time on a set. I need to cut. I would go knock on my neighbor's door and say, hey, you guys just went on a ski trip. I know you have a video camera. Can I cut it for you? And they'd be like, sure. And I'd, I'd spend three days cutting for free their trip. So, you know. Is there a, since you've worn so many hats, is there a place that you feel most at home? Is it still post or is it somewhere else? You know, I think why I do so much when I, I mean, to this day, I still concept to delivery as a filmmaker. That's what I do, you know, from writing fade in on a script to handing it to my distributors or my sales agents. My hand is in every aspect of it. I don't have a favorite and I don't have any of it that I don't enjoy. I like having written. I don't enjoy writing. I like when it's done. Okay, that's a tough journey. I mm. love the camaraderie on a set, building the crew, casting, finding locations. To me, that's it's just a, you're watching something come to life. And then, of course, the, the filming process, if you, if you do your pre-production properly, the filming should be nothing but fun and a great experience. There's no excuse for that to be stressful or contentious. And then the post-production is always nerve-wracking. You know, I think Scorsese always said it best, if you're not scared to death after watching the first cut of your film, you, you failed. And uh, every time we do something, I'm, you know, calling my editor, whoever assembles the film, and like, do we have anything there? Did we, did we shit the bed? You know, we screw the pooch. Is this thing... And you know, once you roll up your sleeves and recut it, it just it starts to take a whole different life. You know, As the filmmakers out here know there's three films. There's the one you write, the one you shoot, and the one you cut. It's fun going through that process. Yeah, absolutely. So it's interesting you talk about yourself as a producer that doesn't want to write. And we've talked about this before on the show that, you know, they're kind of the two categories of producers, those that, that choose to write and take an active role in it and those who find writers. So in your case, you're looking for writers. How do you find good writers? How do you find good material? In finding good material, I've learned a long time ago, art is nothing but opinion. One person can read a script and think it's the greatest thing I've ever read, and you can pass it along to somebody who you respect, and they'll think it's the worst thing you know they've ever seen. It's you know, Jeff McGuire, who wrote Gridiron Gang and got an Academy Award nomination for In the Line of Fire with Clint Eastwood years ago. I always enjoyed his story. It was just like you know, I wrote In the Line of Fire years before it got made. Everybody passed on it twice. And the way it happened was by accident. Clint Eastwood was at Rob Reiner's place in Castle Rock and saw the name of the script on his, you know. It was an accident. And everybody said it was a piece of whatever, and nobody bought in. And then one day somebody who had power said, this is a great script, let's go make the movie. And the rest was history. And not that I'm making movies at that level, but what I try to do when I read a script is I look at it and say, can I identify with the character? Can I identify with the circumstances? And is this something that I think people are going to sit through for 90 minutes? And for me, it, I have to relate to it personally. I have to, I'm not that sci-fi guy. I'm not that slasher pick guy. Things that resonate to me personally, something that I can identify with. If it has those elements, I care about the characters. I enjoy the journey. I think it's got a few laughs. It's got a few cry moments and you know, to me, it's not rocket surgery, you know, it either works or it doesn't. Right. And it's interesting you, you mentioned that story because I feel like Breaking Bad had that similar kind of story in terms of going through the studios and no one wanting to pick it up. So, and now we know what it is today, which is an amazing series. So what I wanted to ask is that is a bit of a tragedy. It's great that Breaking Bad finally did get made, but what if? It never did actually get picked up. Is there a way, it's 2018, 
we have amazing technology at our fingertips. Lots of Hollywood doesn't want to use any of it, but that's beside the point. Is there a way that we fix this problem? That we source material in a, I mean, it's always going to be subjective, but in a way that's at least a little bit more that there's meritocracy to it, that we really see good material come to life. Jordy, I think that we are so fortunate to be in, a, in an age and a time where you literally can spend under $2,000 and get a DSLR, an idea, and put somebody in front of the camera that hopefully can walk and chew gum and get an idea across. When I was coming up, and I'm, you know, I'm in my mid-40s, I'm no spring chicken, but I'm not, you know, geriatric diaper wearer yet. You look healthy to us. Thank you. It's because I eat right. I'm a vegan. But (laughs) back in the day, you would have to buy a film camera, buy film, and it was a big production. And now with a DSLR and a laptop, you're a filmmaker. At the end of the day, you could put something on YouTube. You could put it on Vimeo. You could put it anywhere for people to see. And what I think happens is is a lot of people are, are getting it where they have an idea and they want to sometimes the written word isn't enough and they go out and they make a sizzle. They go out and they make a, they shoot a scene. And that way people, I think people are more apt to watch two or three minutes of an idea than read 30 or 40 or a hundred pages, mostly because a lot of the decision makers can't read. Um, (laughs) Sorry, but they can't and they don't have the patience. They're always looking for the next. And I think they're in a hurry because their jobs are always on the line. They keep their jobs by saying no. They don't take risks. There are the few mavericks out there that do, that will do a, fil- a show like Breaking Bad. You know, there's some, some great decision makers out there that are, you know, David Madden's one of them, you know, who's now at AMC. But it's they're hard to come by. On that point, the whole studio system, we uh, like failing and all these like big bad omens that are coming out. Do you think that there are people out there who are, the those mavericks that you're talking about right do you think that it's within the current studio system or do you think that it's a new generation that's rising with the technology that's more savvy you know i know you work a lot with kids is that the future or are there players in the space right now that will adopt that technology will adopt that new mindset and really start looking for those true artists again that's you know that's a great question jasper i would like to think there are you know robert redford a few years ago at Sundance gave a speech and said, don't be afraid to dig deeper and find those true artists and find those gems, the diamonds in the rough that aren't on the surface, you know? And I thought the speech was great, but I didn't feel like anything came of it. And I don't know. I have been out of the studio loop now for a while. I still know a lot of producers that work with the studios that are doing phenomenal things. But the decision makers, I don't know because I chose a path we're in a unique situation. We kind of create our own material. We have investors that don't ask to see scripts. Our fund- funding doesn't come contingent on cast or script. So when we feel like we need to do something or we want to do something, we strike up the band and we figure it out and we go do it. I just got to the point in my life where Gridiron Gang, you asked about earlier. My father and I made that documentary in 1990. 1990. Okay. It sat for a year and a half before anybody put it on the air. And we had already had a lot of success with other shows that were similar in the same genre. Gridiron finally aired. Nobody wanted it. Everybody thought it was a nice little picture. It aired. The next day, every studio but Paramount got into a bidding war, as did every producer in Hollywood and top actors were calling. Everybody wanted it. My point is, all the decision makers passed on it until it finally got on the air. 
after six months of dealing with every studio, we finally went with Sony Pictures, where it went into development rather quickly, and that was in 1993. Well, I don't know if you guys care or know, but we didn't start making the movie until, what, 2006? <laughs> I personally couldn't be more proud of the film. I love it. It came out better than I had ever hoped and dreamed. But there's a lot of time that went on between let's make a movie and making a movie. And I just got to a point in my life where I, I don't want to talk about making movies. I need to make movies, and I don't care if they're $20,000 films or $400,000 films. The, the passion's the same. The desire's the same. The process of making them is the same. It just So I just got to a point in my life, I'm not waiting for anybody. Let's just go make movies. Some stick and some fail, but we're doing it. I've got a follow-up on that, which is, um, you know, you talked about proof of concept, short films, going out and doing it uh, for the aspiring filmmakers out there, for the artists. Get your vision out there. To a certain extent, that kind of has the same pathway that the original Gridiron Gang towards the film remake did, right? Do you think it's marketing tools? Do you think that these would really fall under marketing rather than creative bursts? Absolutely. I mean, you know, I've had meetings at big studios with films in development, and they don't care about the story. They don't care about the script. Not everybody, but I've been in circumstances where they call you in and you have this big roundtable discussion, and it's a marketing meeting. And it's about the color of the suit the action figure is going to have when it gets into Toys R Us, God rest them, or whatever. And you're sitting here going, we don't even have a script. Why are we taking meetings on widgets and plushies? Because their thinking is all about, and it's marketing. It is. It's yeah. a lot of it is. Yeah. I can't say that, obviously not for everything, but especially in this day and age when it's superheroes, rebranding, remaking, yeah. sequels, prequels, and remakes, it's it's all about marketing, of course. Stretching the P&A dollar. Yeah. Marketing and, and licensing and product, you yeah. know, the, it's the revenue extensions. And it's understandable because they are, you know, trying to make money. And a lot of times they have shareholders that they have to increase shareholder value for. Absolutely. I'm not necessarily advocating the model, but it is where art meets commerce. So I think right. if we're to succeed, then we need to find better models for art and commerce to, you know, come together. So I think for us, I think Jasper and I agree on this a lot, is technology can take a really great place in facilitating that. And obviously Netflix has been a prime example of how technology can be really disruptive in our industry. As but, Blockbuster. Yeah, exactly. Who? <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, and uh, it makes me cry. No, but I really think we've only scratched the surface in terms of technology within our industry. I agree. And there's a lot of companies out there that we know the founders of that are doing really exciting things in the baseline places like the rental space or in development and in rating scripts and you know, finding a more objective way to look at projects. So there's a lot of a lot of technology out there, which is great. Let's switch gears. You have a new book that's coming out, which is super exciting. Thank you. The title of it is again. What you don't learn in film school. And the subtitle is a complete guide to independent filmmaking with the independent in parentheses because it, it applies to, you know, there's some studio, my studio background, my working with networks and all that. But it's geared for the independent filmmaker that the idea basically came from having mentored and consulted with filmmakers over the years. I found that the questions were often the same. Most of them had gone to film school. I spent a lot of time teaching, guest speaking and doing workshops around the country at different film schools. And I find that they're all learning the same thing and they all weren't learning the same thing. 
And you get all these tools when you leave the nest of college, but so many important elements are left out that you're left to kind of fend for yourself. And if you don't know how to run a business, if you don't know how to present a financial opportunity to investors, you know, it's the basic things like looking somebody in the eye and shaking their hand. They don't tell you that in school. So kind of it's a, it's just a 200-page guide of the things that I think were just either overlooked or didn't fit the curriculum of what the university felt the kids needed to know when they walked out. But I promise you, you need to know. Absolutely. I think it's much needed, especially, you know, if for me, it's just the tip of the iceberg in terms of it's not just film schools, right? It's actually our entire university system is not setting people up for success and doesn't teach well said. things that are important for, you know, uh, students and future workers to know in the industry. But in particular in our industry, it's so competitive that this is absolutely necessary. And, you know, probably an encyclopedia of this knowledge, not just one book. So you're striking a chord with me, Jordy. You said it. So I'm going to just kick the door open. You cracked it. I'm going to kick it open. And a few educators are going to cringe, but I don't care. They're we're all going to cringe. <laughs> we're hitting a point right now nationwide in North America where kids who are doing a two to four year program in film schools, 85 to 90 percent of the kids are never getting a job in our industry. They are never seeing a set. They're never getting an opportunity to work. I'm finding with the kids that I mentor after graduation, on average, six to 12 months after they have graduated and get their degree, they are starting to aggressively seek other means of career. Shocking. I never went to school. I squeaked out of high school. And that's not saying, aren't I wonderful? I just didn't go that way. I was lucky. I did a lot of stuff as a young guy, and I just didn't have the grades to get into college from high school, so I had to figure it out. That's the truth. What I'm finding is there is a curriculum that they have to teach. You guys may have gone to film school. A lot of it is the history of cinema, which may be important. But a lot of it is things that I don't think apply to just common sense make a movie. But the problem is, is so many kids are leaving film school and they're they're floundering. They're not getting work and they're looking for what's next. And I think that's unacceptable. I think it's inexcusable. I would like to think the education system, which is failing in many ways, will snap it on and say, we got to make this better. And I don't think it's hard to make better. They just need to prepare the kids better for life. Point being is I went and spoke at a college a month ago. It was a room of 200 kids. I always start out by saying, how many of y'all want to be a, a producer? And all the hands go up. Okay, how many of you guys want to be directors? Most of the hands go up. How many of you want to be writers? A lot of the hands go up. It ends there. You got 200 kids in one room at one university that all want to produce, write, and direct. Well, throw a rock. Who doesn't? What about other things that you can do in our business that are going to hone the craft to make you a writer, a director, a producer one day? They all leave thinking they're going to be the next Quentin Tarantino, and realize six months in, they don't know how to raise money, they don't know how to write, nobody will read their material, they don't have any connections. So my point is, learn other things in our business to become steady earners. Like my father said to me one day, get your butt in the edit bay, I'll see you in five or ten years. It's the last thing I wanted to do, was sit in an edit bay. I thank God for those years. All it did was teach me what not to do. Every day I get on a set as a filmmaker, I make a, I make a mistake, but I'm not making the ones that I fixed for other people for that many years. 
So it's just about finding different ways to find yeah. passion and be an earner in our yeah. business. Yeah, absolutely. And again, the broader point to not just film school, but universities in general, I don't think we do a good job as a society teaching people to learn about themselves, what they like, what they dislike, what they're good at, what their aptitudes are. Those things are really important because the reality is that the little survey that you did, right, with just a sample size of 200 people, it's like if they actually knew what went into those three different jobs or skill sets, most of them would opt out because they'd be like, I don't like that. I don't want to spend my days doing that, you know, and, and it's interesting when you see even the really young students come into the industry. And I've seen a, a lot of PAs that we've hired and coordinators that go on to do a lot of great things. And it's interesting where they start and where they end up. They go through this discovery process, right, where someone comes in and they say, I want to be a sound person. And then they end up being in production design, right, or that they start in and say, I want to be a writer. And they end up being in the camera department. So, you know, it's more about teaching people to kind of learn about themselves. And we don't have any curriculum that gets them there. We don't. We don't. And, you know, we can talk about that off air because I have some things that I, you know, my wife was telling me just yesterday. She's like, why don't you start putting your frustrations to work and allocating a place, a time, workshops, that aren't governed by the schools to stay under the curriculum of what Ridley Scott was thinking when he shot that scene in Blade Runner back in 1984, but to deal with the kids today and what they're facing and what their hurdles are going to be and how to overcome them. And, you know, I agree with you. These kids are not, not equipped with so many things and it's not their fault. It's just, I think everybody's gotten lazy on the other side. I mean, I, you know, I am a big believer in higher education and, and, you know, and the amount of people that go to those schools, there's a lot of talent and there's a lot of passion. You know, these are kids that have grown up with movies like all of us did and gone, this is what I want to do. And it's a bold decision. And a lot of their parents don't actually agree with those pathways. I mean, a lot of those kids are getting student loans and they're in this massive amount of debt. And I think as we're talking about that, there's a place to make that better. Right. But, you know, I mean, speaking candidly, you know, it's the producing program, it's the writing program, it's the directing program, it's the acting program. These people get out after four years, two years of grad school, whatever it is, and then they can't get an internship. And that is, I know we're talking on the same language here, but that's crazy, you know, because I think that it's almost set with the mindset of these schools is preempting them to go like, you know, hey, you're gonna, you go to this producing program, you're a producer. You know, and it, it doesn't take into consideration any of the reality. You know, I know what I do. I go and try and find those passionate people at those schools. What do they do? What they need to do is they need to realize going in the true scope of our industry, how hard it is that a film degree really gives you nothing much more than you've gotten a degree in playing the lottery. Let's call it what it is. You have to have passion, you have to have drive, you have to have desire, and you need talent. So what I've always tried to do going back with, with the kids that are coming out of school is where do you ultimately want to be? I, I go back to the basics of counseling, you know, like my, my high school counselor, Herb Feynman, did. You know, let's do the five-year plan. Let's do the 10-year plan. Where do you see yourself? How are you going to get there? And then work backwards. And... It's amazing because, you know, the kids aren't going to be able to call up Paramount 
and say, I'm available for work. You know, in the old days, kids got out of school. They had these programs where you started out sweeping the floors and you went and like Mrs. Doubtfire, you'd go into the, the film can room and then you'd work into the delivery and then you work. The studios would work people up over 10, 15 years. You'd have a career. They did that. That doesn't exist anymore. So now it's about networking. I think you have to you have to spread yourself out into being showing you can write, showing you can shoot, showing you can edit, showing you can do sound. So as we talked about before, you have all the tools at your fingertips with you and your friends. Get your stuff out. God forbid you do something that goes viral. God forbid somebody knows somebody that knows somebody. Well, I think that is key, what you just said about going out and finding your friends. And we talk about this a lot because we talk about technology and we're trying to bridge the gap between technology and people right now. That's what we're doing over my producer. It's what we work on in a daily basis. I personally think that the digital social uh, Instagram, Facebook, what have you, had encouraged us to feel like we're being more social when we're actually not interacting as much. So people finding those friends usually will get stifled by those people's constraints as well. Those are the other kids in film school. And to be fair, a lot of them are told that, no, you stay in the program and they don't have, they have to work a couple jobs to pay off their loans and all this kind of stuff. So, you know, that's to the spirit of what we're trying to build is that digital community of filmmakers, of talented people so that they can find each other and bring together their talents. That's great. One of the frustrations I have is, you know, I, I try to mentor a lot of the kids coming out, you know, there's a group of them at SC, there's Biola, there's Baylor, there's dealing with a couple of graduates from NYU. Okay, they just graduated and they're moving to LA and, you know, got a couple of them interviews, some very good companies, but they're offering them internships. So I get the phone call from the kids, well, I don't want to work for free. I'm like, you have an opportunity to go work for this producer or that studio. And they're offering you two days, four hours a week. You can go get another job. You get your foot in the door. And a lot of them don't understand. Like, they, well, I have a film degree now. They have this entitlement of, oh, I, <laughs> I, I'm not working for free. And it's frustrating. So to finish what you would ask, like some of the tools these kids have to have is put your pride aside. If you have student loans to pay off, go get a job, drive an Uber, go bag groceries at Trader Joe's or Bed Bath & Beyond. And if somebody's giving you an opportunity to get your foot in the door, you take it. You don't ask how much does it pay? Does it come with benefits? Do I have to work more than 10 hours a day? That shouldn't even be in their mindset. And I find that it is now. Yeah. Going off of what you said, Working with a group of kids doing their thesis film at a major university, I won't name names, they're spending about $35,000 for a short film, 12 pages long, okay? I look at this and I go, okay, that could be done for like 500 bucks if you feed them. They're being forced to hire certain people in the school, well, use, I shouldn't say hire. School doesn't force a hire, they force a use, which is fine. The kids at the school know that they're being forced to use them, so the kids are now charging the film students within the school for their services. What's more mind-blowing to me is the kids that are doing this are charging more than the going rate for the people that I would hire to do a film. I mean, guys that have got 40, 50, 60 films under their belt that I could call and say, I've got this job for you. I'm going to pay you this much. Great. We got a deal. Let's go work and have fun. These college kids are being held over a barrel by their fellow students because they have to hire the fellow students. Mind-blowing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's a much broader conversation, potentially. I don't know how much we want to get into it, but 
compensation in our industry. You know, I going back to the point you made related to swallow your pride and if you can get your foot in the door. I totally agree with the sentiment. I think there are a lot of millennials, Gen Zers out there who are saying, hey, hold on a second. You know, it's not legal to hire people to work for free, which point taken. And I want to acknowledge that, not because I want to detract from what you're saying, but just because I would acknowledge that that's going to be their counterpoint, which is totally off topic, but is something really important them for them to understand that for us as more seasoned folks, you a lot more seasoned than us, but as more seasoned folks in the industry, it's our responsibility to acknowledge that there is a lot of exploitation, that there's inadequacy in compensation mechanisms. And I think if we can have a little bit more transparency and even if it's just paying people minimum wage, it's like, look, foot in the door, minimum wage. That's always our mantra with our companies here. It's like we do not hire people to work for free. We know they would come out for free, but we refuse to. If we can, as an industry, embrace just the baseline treatment of people, then we can start to get some consistency around, you know, what kind of work ethic is required to succeed in the industry. That's, you know, that's a good point. I think I come from a different generation and not saying I'm right and you're wrong. You are right. And there is a different level, I think, mentality, exploitation. When I was coming up and I wanted to work on a set, we didn't have the internet. We had something called crew call. You woke up, the ass crack at dawn, you faxed in a resume, you called, you took 40 different job openings, you called and the line was busy, you hit redial, redial, and you finally got in to find out the job was taken by 20 guys before you. So what I did is I called cinematographers like, you know, Phil Hearn, Rich Real. I'd call them up and say, guys, I need work. It's not a money, I need to get exposure. I'd call Phil Hearn. He'd say, you know what? I'm shooting a thing tomorrow. Get out there at six o'clock. Bring your own lunch. We'll see. You can be you can be an assistant gaffer. You can grip today. I didn't ask for money. But what it did is it built a resume. It built a knowledge for me. Now, is that how people do it today? I guess not. I'm not saying my way's right and yours isn't, but yeah. I don't no, have I, a shortage of people it, that it, want to work on right. a set. And I guess what, <laughs> no, and I guess what I'm saying to clarify, right, is that there is a middle ground. I think that we're playing the extremes. And I believe that playing the extremes is never good when it comes to work, compensation. You know, people inevitably talk and get grumpy. And so, no, definitely the younger generations don't get it, right? When they come out of film school and expect to make $75,000 a year with a studio or with a production company, it's like, no, give me a break, you know? But by the same token, if they're crying about working for free, I also understand that perspective, you know? So it's like if we can come more to the middle, sure. we're going to be better as an industry. One thing, I know you got something to say, but let me give you my other side of that. The one thing I would never ask anybody to do is something I haven't done or would not do myself. I'm shooting a big music video June 17th for a band that sold several million records. I volunteered to do it. I didn't ask for the job. I didn't hunt it out. Just in talking with somebody... I said, you guys should do this. Let me do it. Let me put this together for you guys. This is going to take a month and a half out of my life, not including the post-production side. I'm not asking for a dime. Doesn't mean I have the resources to sit back and work for free. I look at it as, you know what? I haven't done a music video I'm excited about in a long time. I used to do a lot of them. And you know what? It'd be fun. Let's re-spark that side of the career again. I'm going to invest in Shane. Let me do something for you for nothing. I reach out to a few cinematographers and say, hey, I'm shooting this video, this date, you in, you out. It's no pay. They can decide. Yeah. I had yeah. four of them already offer to take the job. 
But it's funny, as I get down to the PAs, as I get down to the ACs, the younger group, oh, no, what are you paying me? Yeah. Well, and and I, and I again, it's not, both Jasper and I are above the line, right? So that's where we spend our time. But spend so much time working with crews yeah. and representing crews and our friends with crews. So, you know, not to defend, but to give, I think, their point of view on that, and it's a very real one, is that they're probably making less money you know, than you in aggregate. So you can afford to take that free job. I can afford to do those passion projects. I think a lot of times the below the line crew, if it is a PA just out of college, you know, they're living with roommates. They really don't have money. So, and I guess the point I'm making is as a production, if a small production company like Marching Penguin can afford to pay every single person that ever works with us, then why can't the big ones? That's the only I agree. point I make. I don't disagree with you. And I'm not saying we always pay the best rate on the planet. You know, there are times when we're, you know, we work with clients that are crushing us on rates. Oh, and so we have to to pay less. But of course, but we still are not going to ask people to work for free. I get that. I get that. Well, I think it comes down to this. You know, I think we're almost talking about two different kinds of projects we right are. now. We're talking we about, quote unquote, commercial versus, quote unquote, passion and art. And in the mix is opportunity on both of them and career growth on both of them and hopes and dreams. And we talk about that a lot, right? There is something that I know you talk a lot about, Shane, is never get rid of the ego of no job too small, no job too big. Do everything you can yourself. I mean, find like-minded people in that way. I work with a lot of young creatives because I believe that they're the future. I believe that's where our art is and it's been mishandled. In terms of crafting opportunity, getting them to work together on what they're passionate about and inspire each other is worth its weight in gold. And I don't know anybody who would say otherwise. Working on something you're inspired by or with somebody who inspires you or for something that you want is key. And that goes to your point about the music video. It's something you want to do and you want to find like-minded people. Really, I think it's about finding your tribe is the conversation that we're talking about. Well, yeah, and I guess for me, and it's not a frustration thing, it's, you know, look, the band's showing up, I'll show up, give me a camera, that's all I need. But to me, I look at a group of kids that are coming out of film school that have no clue what they're gonna do. They don't know anybody. They're not getting any opportunity. And I say to them, hey, I got a shooter. The guy is, you know, he's ASC. He shoots 24 days out of the month on average. He's not bringing one guy from his crew. Looks to me like this is a good opportunity to shine for a guy that just may like you and say, hey, I'm starting a feature next week. I like your hustle. That's how I got my first paid job was hustling. And somebody who was a decision maker saw it and said, I like your work ethic, dude. Come with me. I'm doing a, I'm doing a film in Bali, Indonesia next month yeah. Yeah. for Sony. Yeah. That was my first paid job. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, and I, I totally agree. And what Jasper's saying is, is on the nose, which is it is two different things. You they know, are. if it's a passion project, that's one thing. If there's money on the table, Absolutely. then that's a totally different thing. I couldn't agree And the, the point is that there is a lot of work out there where there's big studios behind projects and people are getting exploited. So that's Especially that's the ad the agencies. Yeah. I think the ad agencies are the worst. You know, they come to producers and say, we've got, we've got 100 grand, we need five commercials. And you find out the client's paying them a million and they come to the production company and say, we've got 100, we need this. So it dwindles down and then the expectations. Yeah, I find absolutely. That, yeah, when absolutely. I used to do commercials, that was a big thing. Well, the average, it might have changed a bit, but last I checked about a year and a half ago, the average 30-second spot, the budget is 
over $300,000. And I'm sure if you talk to any of the bigger brands, I know folks who are brand managers at some of the biggest companies in the world, and they'll tell me, no, no, that's a drop in the bucket. You know, it's it usually, should be a drop in the bucket. I yeah. know I was doing national spots for certain things without naming names. Right. They'd come to me and say, I need eight to 12 spots shot in five days to last a year for the client. And here's what you're getting. Yep. It's nuts. It, well, it, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's not really, Ford, yeah, but you know. It, right. And I, <laughs> I, I think that that is nuts because that means that the production industry is really suffering they take a hit. They take a huge hit, right? Yes. Because when we talk about, and we've, we've done it through several episodes so far, as we talk about features that are being done for under a million features that require at least two weeks of filming and post and all this other stuff. And it ends up being a 90 minute film, right? How can we do features for that? And yet we can't do commercials for less than 300,000, you know? So there's definitely a, an issue. That's a good point. Yeah. I know in some of these commercials, they would, they would have their, we're paying the director this, we're paying the cinematographer that everybody else screw them. I mean, that would be the approach that the ad agencies would take where they control the budgets off and they wouldn't, they'd come to you and say, produce this. You'd say, okay, to do it this way, so we have harmony and we get the best bang for the buck, this is what you do. Well, that's fine, but you have to take this out, take this out. And then you literally left with nothing for the crew. Hmm. I've never had a happy crew on those kind of commercials and I don't control the money. They walk away very disgruntled because they know the DP's making 10 grand a day the director's making 25000 a day, and we're shooting 10 commercials in three days. Yeah, absolutely. They're getting nothing. I mean, do you think that that is the quote-unquote industry and infrastructure hacking the system? Going, I only, I know I, as the top dog or the Absolutely. person paying this producer, I know Absolutely. I only have to pay three people because yep. that's how independent films are made. Mm -hmm. I know that part of this entire workforce is this kind of like, you know, everybody will do favors for each other. Everything works on word of mouth. So these are people who are not in the industry going, I know how your industry they works. They know enough to be dangerous. Yes. Because, you know, when you're told, when, when they call you because they like your work and they say, we need this from you and we're giving you this much money, you kind of go, mm, okay, well, hey, it's a job. Keep me out of the gutter for a few weeks. I'll take it. But then they start telling you where the money has to go. You look at me and say, hey, you're asking guys, union or non-union, you're asking them to work for $7 an hour when it's all said and done. And you're paying them less than right. minimum wage. Right. It happens exactly. a lot. Exactly. Happens a lot. And we're almost opening up a Pandora's box here. but We, that, we can. I'll we, put some more money in the meter. I'll yeah, go with exactly. you in five hours, dude. Exactly. I don't, I, no, I, I mean, a big point that I want to make along the lines of this is how we talk about rates. We talk about day rates in the industry. And then we base them off of these hourly projections that we invented that aren't aligned with like legal requirements, right? So it, we're in California. California law says it's an eight hour day and then you go into OT. So why is really? the standard, <laughs> right? Sorry. Exactly. Why is the standard that we offer 10 hour a day rates? Why is that the standard or 12 depending on you know, what you're, you're hired, you go 12. I like you. Yeah. So why is it that we are doing that when it's like clear as day, what the law is, anyone can Google it right now and look it up. You know, my, my partner, Tiffany at visual arts entertainment, her and I had a really interesting conversation about a year and a half ago. And it's, 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 I touched upon it in her book and she said to me, you know, and this was before all the stuff that went on 
since last October, and which is long overdue. I mean, it's great. It's great. You know, the biggest problem is going to be is this independent contractor thing. And I said, what do you And she used to work in HR for like, you know, Amgen. So she's smart. She's smart. I, I align myself with great people and she's one of them. And she said to me, here's the problem in our, and she always says your industry. She refuses to be a part of our industry. She says, look, in your industry, nice. she said, you guys pull this, we're hiring you as an independent contractor. So you offer this guy this fakakta rate for a day or a week. You pay him gross so you don't have to pay his taxes. And then you tell him where and when he has to be and for how long. She says, you do realize he's an employee, he's not an independent contractor. That's going to become a big problem. I touch upon it in the book and she's right. Because if I'm hiring you to be a grip and I tell you, Jasper, here's your call sheet. I need your ass on my set at 6.30 a.m. You're going to work for me until we say that's a wrap. You're technically an employee. If you're an independent contractor, you say, yeah, I know you're there. I'll see you when I see you. I'll work the hours I work to do my job. But you are working under our headship. You're technically an employee. I think that's going to be a big problem. They don't hear this. Somebody's going to wake up one day and change that. It's right. going to become it's going to become a shit show. Yeah, exactly. For, for our independent well, world. Yeah. Well, I think part of the issue too is in the understanding of what independent contractor is. Because not to call you out on it, but you're right and you're also wrong because it's a totally muddy and gray area that's not well defined by the government, right? Right, right. Which is, yes, there are technical standards that say it's clear that one part of the definition is that if you tell them where to show up and tell them how to do their work, they may be an employee, not 100%. That's one of the litmus tests. But that's the problem is that there are multiple litmus tests because, you know, we can point out what's an example is if you hire a director and they work for dozens of clients each year and they have their own website and their own LLC, right? And you tell them where to show up and what time and how to do their work, they're still an independent contractor in that case, right? Because there are other litmus tests that show they are an independent contractor, right? So that's the challenge is that there are multiple litmus tests that we have to go through. Some are obvious, right? A PA, it's obvious. That person doesn't have a business, right? They don't have a website that says, I'm the best PA on the planet. Visit best PA. I've seen one. Some of them, right? <laughs> well, do they, Go to yeah, Mandy's, right? you may see well, one. Well, <laughs> you, guys, you guys making that counterpoint, even though it's funny, it just proves the point, right? Which right. is there are multiple litmus tests. Right. And that's what clouds the waters, right? So you're right. You're right. So there's yeah. it's that part's complex. What I think is not complex is eight hours, ten hours, twelve hours. That's clear as day. And only our industry up, gets away with it. Yeah. That's the irony. Correct me if I'm wrong. I'm sure there's a few other ones, but in reality, we get away with you know, people say, Well, I like this for ten. Well, we may go twelve. All right, fine. You know, I mean, everything's just kind of whatever. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, which is the institution, right? Like only in our industry can you get away with being physically violent to your assistants, uh, throwing shit at them, uh, you know, punching the walls and stuff. And, you know, I was talking to a music video producer yesterday, you know, about how her boss is just like, you know, he's had a production. He's just destroying the wall. Well, at least <laughs> he's hitting the wall. And, no, no, no. And I, <laughs> listen, my first question, by the way, my first question, I said, stop. Did they do anything to you? Yeah, she was like, no, but thank you for asking. We don't ask those questions enough and we don't no. chase those tales enough. No, we don't. We don't chase, yeah, it's the overworking and stuff like that, but that's one part of it. That's why this industry was able to have so many pigs, right? Violent abusers, 
because they use this weird combination of institutionalized art and they have the ego of artists. What we do is important. And what we do is important. None of us would be here if we weren't passionate artists. But at a certain point, there are people that manipulate the quote unquote system with hours and rates and terms and government and stuff like that. And I think that that's a big part of the problem. Well, it you is. It, it, as, I, as I mentioned in the book, you know, part of why I wrote this was, as I say to the kids coming out is, you know, I know you worked hard to get your degree and that's great, but you grew up, you kind of got brought up in bubble wrap. You know, it's, you didn't get phones ripped out of the wall and thrown at your head like I did. You know, I've been in edit bays where I physically am breaking up fistfights between directors and producers as the editor where they, like, literally, I take three or four shots to the face because I'm in between them. Only our industry. I, I don't know where else. Maybe in Wall Street people flip out, but yeah. I, I don't know. Well, there's a story, you know, Jim Cramer. Yeah. Yeah, when he ran his hedge fund, he used to have all, his secretary had all these keyboards in the closet. <laughs> and literally, if something would happen, the hedge fund would be down, like, $20 million. He'd, like, crack a keyboard, and she'd go yep. to the closet, pull yeah. one out. So. Maybe that industry, but no, you're absolutely right. Our industry is is notorious for that. And I mean, there's so much that that we need to change on it. I mean, the question is, you know, this is a little bit of a broader question, but how do we stop that? Tell us, Shane, how do we stop it? I think the only way to do it is you're going to get indie rats like me who are always going to... A what? An indie rat. That's what I am. I, I make independent films and I... I've got the tattoo as well. Uh, okay, good. <laughs> We're going to get you one later, Jordy. <laughs> The uninitiated. I Look, I came up working 36 hours a day on stuff that I believed in after working for minimum wage, you know, in a job I didn't want. 36 hours a day? Yeah. I can prove it. There's a way. But, <laughs> but <laughs> trust me. <laughs> no, but, you know, you, you go, you get up, you yeah. work yeah. for a job, you, you yeah. pay your rent, and you come home and you turn on your computer and you, you're editing that project that, you know, yeah. that nobody else, that everybody worked on for free. And what happens is you grow up and you get a little money to do a project and you look at it and you realize you're going to be on this project for eight, nine, 12, 16 months. And at the end of the day, you're making like $32 and you cut corners wherever you can to get it done. And I think the only way it's going to change is if people finally say no. But people that are independent producers, and I'm not saying this is my mentality, but they have, the, there's so many of you, next, find me the one that will. Next man up, find me the one that will. And there always will be somebody willing to take lunch for a screen credit or an IMDb credit. And until everybody can bound together and say enough is enough, it's going to keep happening. Right. You don't think that there are small steps that we can take to do that? Because I think the whole idea of getting everyone together and being like, now no one do copy meals credit. I don't think that's ever happening. I but, think, okay, I want to hear your idea. But one thought is you brought up a great point. And it's something that, again, my partner and I always go back and forth on. Is it eight? Is it 10? Is it 12 hours? I never knew because I've never held a structured job that's not in the business. I've never had a job where I punch in and punch out. So I don't know. I've never been paid over time. Okay. So I'm not excusing myself from being a horrible boss. But I think if you start a movement and you guys are good at it, you start a movement and say, if you're working on something, it's this level, it's eight. You work in indie, it, it caps at 10. Start a movement. Let people know they can't be abused. Because most independent films that are shooting in 12, 13 days, they're working 14, 16 hour days. They're beating the hell out of their crew. Set a limit. Set the tone. Yep. I think that'll start something. No, I think that part of it is 
finding your tribe. And I keep saying that, right? But it's how we start a movement is by getting the good people together, period. As I was saying, how we solve the problem from my understanding and, and action, and this is the reality that I try and live in and have tried to craft, right? And I think we all do this, is finding our tribe of people who will work with us, who want good things for each other and will build a better Hollywood. You know, I always talk about that. How do we build a better Hollywood, right? You know, for instance, a lot of people will say, oh, there's not a lot. Hollywood's filled with bad people. That is a fear that has been propagated. And listen, there are a bunch of, you know, quote unquote, bad people or whatever in any industry. Try real estate. Just in the world. But a lot of it comes from misunderstanding of each other and misevaluation of what person has and what your expectations of them are. Lack of respect. And lack of respect. And I think it comes down to this, which is my challenge to people is reach out to 100 people that you don't know who work in your same industry that you would like to talk to and see if they will take that meeting. See if they'll have that coffee. You know, I did that. And, you know, I expected three people to get back to me. Like 97 got back to me. Wow. You know, and it, it says something, right? What it taught me, my learning lesson on that was you being afraid of being rejected is not going to get you anywhere. Uh-uh. You're the only person who's judging yourself, you know, and everybody is looking for community. And honestly, would you ever want to work with somebody who's not looking for that? Me, I wouldn't know. Great. You know what I think a problem is? And, and I've been guilty of it as a producer, so I'll, I'll put myself out there. I don't care. I'm not perfect. That yeah. is on the chopping block. Yeah, I don't care. I mean, you know, I admit it in the book. It's only because it happened to me coming up. The way you get, a lot of times you get cheap or free help in this business, is you find that that AC, that second AC, that's dying for that AC credit or that operator credit that you know can do the job. And you say, hey, look, man, I don't have a budget to pay you a rate that's fair, but I'm going to give you a significant bump in your department which you can take with you and work into the future with, because now you're no longer a second second or a second, you know, if they're an AD or whatever. And, you know, how many second ADs know how to be an AD? They've just never been given the chance. You know, you say to somebody, hey, I'm going to give you an opportunity to be an AD on a film with decent cast, decent producers on it, yinny out. Most of the kids take the job. I'm not yeah. saying it's right. We've done that in the past. And, I know what it's done for a lot of yeah. careers. I think that's okay, though, though, uh, to a certain d- degree, right? Like the devil's in the details. So, yeah, I want people screaming, saying, no, but it, depending on what it is, I mean, that is how you move up in any industry, right? Absolutely. Which is you step into a job that you haven't done that's above you. And most of the time, you're not getting the going rate for it. You might, you know, if you're a salaried employee, you're moving up from being individual contributor to like a manager, but you've never been a manager. So you technically get like a junior manager type salary. Right. Right, right. And then once you're there, then you become a manager. That makes sense because there's a linear logical flow to the progression. Sure. What doesn't make sense is, Oh, you know, you want to move from first AC to finally being a DP or a cinematographer. I got nothing. I'm going to ask you to work for free and you right, can be a right, cinematographer. Right. That, yeah. that is not how no. other industries work. That's so. not, no. But, you know, I think to ask how we make a change is I think kids, and I say kids, they could be 40. New and people, babes in the business, they need to, they need to not hear what they want to hear. They need to look at situations carefully, not make decisions. I, I obviously don't, don't answer important life decisions, work decisions on the fly. Always ask if can I get back to you tomorrow. Sleep on it. 
so many kids jump at a chance. They jump into the pool head first without not only checking the temperature, but the depth. You know, I mean, I had a makeup artist working on a show with me last year and she came running up to me and she said, I just got offered the best gig in the world. It's a five million dollar film. I said, I'm looking around our set going, who in the blue hell's doing a five million dollar film? And it turns out one of our PAs was producing a five million dollar film next month and offered her the job. And, you know, is the key. And uh, it turns out that movie never got made. Shocker. But that happens all the time. And she had already committed to do the job. And I think you know, people just take a breath and. I think a lot of that comes down to this quote-unquote reality that we're always chasing, right? And what opportunity actually means, you know? And I know that this is a very sensitive subject, but the festivals, you know? And that's something that you talk about in your books as well, you know, where people will go, this is my opportunity to become my new creation of myself. You know, what do you say to people who are courted with opportunity and might lack the wherewithal and the experience to judge it adequately? You know, because that person who sits on it for a night, you can't Google some of this stuff. That's true. Look, I only try to, to remind people to take time to think and before you answer, because I find when I do, I'm much happier with the decisions I've made. I've made more mistakes than I've made success. My book is littered with my screw ups. I mean, seriously, I could do 10 books on what I've done wrong. I just think you have to trust your gut. There's common sense. I think there's trust. Having a mentor in your life, you know, you guys are sharp. You've been that done there. Can you imagine if a, if a kid 19, 20 years old out of film school or, you know, in between summer break has an opportunity can call somebody like me or you guys and say, this guy called me up. This is what they're offering me. Just to have that voice of reason. God forbid. 100%. I know and live exactly what you're talking about. And I, I, I think it does require people like us who will be that person. You know, I had somebody who uh, was going to sign with an agency and they go, hey, I'm going to sign with this agency. It's this big, it's this big offer and all this kind of stuff. And I was like, I did a couple of simple things like checking out the Instagram, <laughs> checking out their social media page, checking out like if they had any referrals or anything. It was, it was a bunk company. Yeah. You know, and to that point, it takes people who have a little bit more knowledge to pick up the phone to answer an email. And I just feel blessed, you know, really to know both of you, but to know this larger, greater community of just really awesome people that will take the time to answer a question. Because we all have stupid questions. We all ask things that we don't, the problem is not asking. You know, I think that's what the problem Jasper, is. Jasper, you hit the nail on the head. One of my favorite parts of the book, and I'm not trying to get you, but seriously, I have a chapter called Sales and Deception, and I cross out deception and change it to distribution because I, you know... The biggest misnomer. You like puns. I like puns. Punny. The biggest misnomer in independent film is the distribution side, and what what I've always done. I've worked with some great sales agents and some great distributors. I am not doing a grand gesture here of they all suck. There are so many people, as you and I talked about when we were together last week, is you know people who prey on hopes and dreams. The sales agents. It's really easy to find out if a good one's interested in you. You go to IMDb. You look at the other films are repping and you call the producers that are on those films and say, this guy repped your film and shut up and listen. And every time growing up as I did that and I would be told all the horror stories that come with that sales agent, if I was dumb enough to sign on a dotted line, guess what? I just, I was another log on the fire of tragedy. Mm. And I was dumb enough to take advice from producers that said, do not sign with them. They're full of it. They're going to run you ragged. They're going to tell you all the BS you want to hear. And your, your movie's going to end up in a scrapbook of 7,000. You're not even going to get a poster at AFM. They were never wrong. 
And those are the kind of things I look at that when it comes to taking opportunities, signing with an agent. You're right. Not everything is Googleable, but you sure don't have a lack of resources at our fingertips now where we can cross-reference and start calling people and saying, hey, this guy's reaching out to me. You have a history. Talk to me and just shut up. Put your ears on, close your mouth, and you'd be amazed what you find out. Yeah, absolutely. So let's switch gears and let's talk about something with a little bit more levity potentially. What's the favorite project that you worked on? Favorite project that I worked on would have to be, if I had to pick an experience that was from beginning to end, the greatest thing I've ever been a part of, I'd probably have to say the untold story film I did last year that's coming out later this year with uh, Barry Van Dyke, Nia Peoples, Jason Connery, Jordan Ladd. It's just a hodgepodge of, of great talent in front of and behind the camera. It was just it was just fun. First thing my dad and I did together is writers. We hadn't worked together since Gridiron Gang back in 2006. And the idea hit me, and I just thought, what a great opportunity for us to collaborate on. What's that about? The Untold Story is about Edward Forster, an actor who's getting ready to hit 65, who had it all. He had a great career, had a great marriage, big house in Beverly Hills. And when we meet him, he's packing up the U-Haul with a couple of day laborers and moving out of his house in Beverly Hills and driving it over the hill to take refuge in, a, in an apartment in Reseda and start his life over at 65. Gone broke, doesn't work, nobody wants him. He's washed up, but he still believes in himself. And it's a story about never quitting, not taking no for an answer and realizing that it's never too late. And it's a, it's a great love story that brews between him and his neighbor, played by Nia Peoples. It's just their total opposites. And it's just, it's a neat love story without sap. There's no kissing and romance. It's just this relationship that builds with with their journeys. What was the budget? I'm not allowed to disclose the budgets on a couple of the projects, but I will say that it was was under a half a million. That I can tell you. Aggressive. I mean, it was a lot less than a half a million. What did you shoot it on? All the DPs wanted to know. Oh, we shoot. We, we always shoot on the Reds, the latest Reds. I think when we shot that one, it was the the Dragon or the Mysterium, and you know they they change every movie. It's we're getting this right. No, it's yeah. no longer the hit yeah. thing. You know, we've done three movies since since Untold Story, and every time it's a different camera yeah. package. Exactly. What um, about the glass? What about the glass? <laughs> what what glass did you use on that one? I know getting we technical Zeiss. Here. I know. I think we used the Zeiss Super Speeds. Okay. On that one. Nice. Yeah, Austin Harris shot it, who Austin is one of the greatest drone pilots in the world. He works for Vertical Prime. It's his brother's company. They, they, I mean, he shoots, if you're seeing something on CBS, he shot it. If you're seeing Ariel, like the Red Bull Challenge, he shoots all that. I mean, this guy is the guy. He was an operator for Zalman King when I used to work with Zalman. And he shot a lot of stuff with Zalman, music videos, Pleasure of Pain, and, and I just like Austin. He was really mm-hmm. low key. And when I got the green light to do Untold Story, I wanted it to be as unattractive as possible. And I know that sounds awful to say I didn't want a beautiful film. And I had just saw Dallas Buyers Club. I was a little late, but I saw it. <laughs> and I called up Austin and I said, hey, you're really good with like available light and a bounce board. He's like, yeah, what? Well, you know, that's how Austin talks. Yeah. So I said, dude, that's our light kit available on a bounce. Like, okay. What are we shooting? I'm like, I don't know. We'll get a red. Let's do it. So we got two reds. We got a bounce board. And, you know, we got a couple other things. We got a Kino. And, but we just, <laughs> just a single Kino. Just right? one Kino yeah. and a really bright styrofoam board my partner Tiffany held. No, I'm kidding. Nice. No, we had a great crew. And it was just, it was a fun project because it was 
doing independent movies the way that I like to do independent movies. You write the script, you believe in the script, you get a great cast, you go out and you shoot for 20 days and you bag the beast. And and that's how we do all of them. But the experience on Untold Story for me from concept to delivery was just... What was the hardest thing about getting it made? The hardest thing about getting it made was... Um, I like how you just repeat every question. I am used perfect. to that from my years yeah. of, you know... It's like the docu style. Yeah, yeah, to, yeah, exactly. We're going to incorporate question. the question yeah. in your answer. Yes. We're going to ditch my yeah. voice. <laughs> we, I, I have a, a couple of investors I've worked with for 100 years and was revisiting with an investor who hadn't worked with us in a while just due to circumstances, nothing bad. And he asked to see the script. I'll never forget. It was, it was May 4th. He said, let me see the script. I'd love to see it. I'd love to work with you again. June, mid-June, I got a phone call. Haven't read your script yet. I haven't forgotten about you. Okay, cool. Early July, haven't read your script yet. Haven't forgotten about you. Late August, haven't read your script yet. Haven't forgotten about you. And I know never to call and say, did you read it? Did you read it with this guy? I've done a lot of movies with this fella. Finally, he calls me up in October. He goes, so what's this thing about? I haven't read the script yet, and I'm not going to read it. So I told him, I said, it's this great story about this 64-year-old actor who's down on his luck, and he picks himself up from the canvas and kicks ass in round 12. What do you want? And he goes, how much do you want? I told him, he goes, oh, it sounds like fun. Okay, let's do it. So the hardest thing was the waiting. That yeah. was it. Yeah. That was it. Which is kind of all of our industry is That's hurry our up industry. and wait. It's, it's hurry up hurry, and wait. Hurry up and wait in development. Hurry up and wait on set. Hurry up and wait in post. Hurry up and wait in distribution. Hurry up and wait on the film festivals. Yeah. And it was funny making the film. I will say, if you guys want a really dark story that comes with it, I'll tell you. But I was actually having lunch. I just got done doing a series of infomercials for a, a cosmetic company. Hmm. And in that, there was a lot of beautiful celebrities and nice. most of them treated the crew like crap they were not nice no just like you've got to be freaking kidding me i mean and most of them were soap stars who sorry just you just want to bitch slap most of them anyway i'll just say it a lot of talent with soap stars i mean they got to do 60 pages a day i'm not there's just this persona that comes with a lot of them when they show up on commercials and infomercials they can really be a pain in the ass hmm. so we had a series of them that treated the crew poorly. And I was having lunch with Ed McPherson, who's one of my dear friends. He's my lawyer, great lawyer in LA. And I'm having lunch with him. And the whole lunch was me telling him how much I'm done. I hate this industry. People suck. I never want to be in this business anymore. I've given it my life. I just, I'm done. And he was telling me all the reasons why I shouldn't. He still have so much more to give. And he was kind enough to pick up the tab to lunch. And then he said, by the way, what was the name of the worst actor on the set? And I told him, and he laughed. He said, he used to be my client. That guy's a son of a bitch. So I'm driving home, and it was a rare rainy day in Los Angeles. I'm driving home. I'll never forget. I'm at Little Santa Monica in Beverly Glen. I'm at a red light. I look around, and I see this really well-known actor in this car next to me. So I'm sitting at a red light, and I look over, and there's this, there's this actor, two cars over. And I, I've worked with him. I know him. And he looked. He looked miserable. He looked as miserable as I was. And he's had a great career. So I tap my horn, and he's looking in his rearview mirror. I'm like tapping it again, trying to get his attention, but it's pouring rain. The light goes green, the car behind me honks and tells me to go. So I get home, I email him, and I said, hey, that was me honking at you at Beverly Glen in Santa Monica. And he's like, oh my God, how are you? I'm sorry I didn't see you. And so I said, hey, 
I got an idea for something. I'll call you later. I sat down, 65 pages came out of me in a day. He inspired me seeing him in his car. I called him back. I said, I want to send you five pages to a script. I want you to commit to it, yay or nay. I sent him five pages. He wrote me back and said, I'm in. I love it. Call me. I called him. He said, you know, when you saw me, I just left a meeting with another actor who was an Academy Award winner who's my age. And we were talking about the industry and how it's forgotten us and it's moved on and how we're just that afterthought cast now. And this is exactly what the movie's about. It's about guys your age. It feel like it's over. And so that's what started the whole thing. And it brought me back and invigorated me. And I hit a wall at about page 65. I called my dad, who's older than me. And I said, I've got this idea. I want you to write with me. And he goes, well, I'm in Mexico. I'm not coming to write with you. He's living in Mexico <laughs> on his boat. So I said, well, we have email. He's like, all right, send me what you got. So I sent him what I had and he called and said, I'm flying in. We're going to work on this together. So we did. It was fun. That's cute. That's cute. Fun story. Awesome. That actor, by the way, did not end up doing the movie. His agent ruined the deal. So Barry stepped in and I couldn't be happier. He got the right guy for the role. Nice. I'm kind of a firm believer that we find the right people. And those are the projects that get made. And that's the people it gets made with. You know, everybody likes to think that there's this huge amount of like, you know, market and there's so many buyers and all of this. Well, you end up with one of them. You end up with one actor. You know, sometimes I guess you end up with two. <laughs> but, you know, what do you think about that? Do you think that there is kind of like an almost like manifest destiny of a project? Yes. Gridiron Gang, classic example. Met with Neil Moritz. Neil, you know, produced Fast and the Furious, the SWATs, 21 and 22 Jump Street. I mean, Neil is just the guy. Neil is always like the idea of Gridiron Gang. And Neil, I went to Neil with my dad and said, let's make Gridiron Gang. And he said, this thing sat in development for 12 years because of cast. They had everybody from Forrest Whitaker, Dustin Hoffman, Sean Penn, Mel Gibson, Charlie Sheen, John Candy, Bruce Willis, Cher for crying out loud. Everybody attached to this film at one time. And it was all about cast. Neil said, let's figure out the cast. This will come together. Come up with a list. Let's dig this out. And my wife was watching E! True Hollywood Story as I'm coming up with a cast list for Neil. She says, honey, get in here. I said, I'm busy. You know, Get in here. I refused. I was working at my desk coming up with this, this list. Yeah. She comes in. She got tears pouring out of her eyes. I said, what? She says, get in here. I got your actor. I walk in. She's watching the E! True Hollywood Story on some guy named Dwayne The Rock Johnson. And I said, the wrestler. She said, he was arrested a dozen times before his 16th birthday. Football got him out of trouble, and he's got a hell of an acting career. If you'd pull your head out of your ass, you'd know this. Watch this with me. I watched five minutes. I tore up the list. Dad and I went back to see Neil two days later. I said, Dwayne The Rock Johnson. He said, I'm having dinner with him tomorrow. Get me a copy of the documentary you and your dad made. Three days later, we were Dwayne up at the prison. He committed to making the movie. Boom. So yeah, things happen for a reason. Love it. That's amazing. That's the story. Such a great story. Absolutely. Shane, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. The insight, the experience is outstanding. The book, I'm sure, is even better. What you don't learn in film school, it's already out. Where can you get it? You can get the book at Amazon.com. You can get it at Barnes & Noble. Wherever they sell ebooks. it's available at over 54 retailers. Website for the book is whatyoudontlearninfilmschool.com. You can go there. You could go to my website, shanestanley.net, which will take you to that website that I just mentioned for the book. And there's plenty of places and links to get it. Very cool. Well, we're excited about it. Thank excited you. Excited about your upcoming projects. And thanks for being on. Yeah. Congratulations on the book. And uh, thanks for coming out.
Thanks for having me, guys. It's a pleasure. Hope to do it again. Definitely. This episode is brought to you by Marching Penguin Digital Production Studio. Since 2012, Marching Penguin has been producing premium digital content for venture-backed startups and Fortune 500 companies alike. With more than 1,000 produced videos to date, Marching Penguin has a broad experience set to accommodate marketers looking to create a stronger online footprint with video. Visit GoMarchingPenguin.com to learn more today.